G'day everyone, my name is Paul Owens, also known as Owie. Welcome to Church at 6.30 if this is your first night with us. It's great to have you with us. I think we're going to be doing question time afterwards, so um, pile up your questions and we'll deal with them at the end. Let's start by praying. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you that you've given us the book of Esther that shows us something more of your character, that you are a God who loves your people and delivers on your promises. And we pray tonight that as we look at your word, change our hearts. Help us to know you more, to love you more, and to serve you more. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Many years ago now when I was in the police, there was a saying that used to drift around the police station fairly quickly amongst uh, the staff. It was, there's a whale in the bay. Now, I expect you heard the words, but you don't understand what it is. The saying, there's a whale in the bay, was was a description that there was a senior officer somewhere on the station. So someone above the rank structure of our boss had turned up and a superintendent or a chief superintendent, maybe even an assistant commissioner, had turned up and was on the station. And it was important to know that as quickly as you could so that you could firstly make yourself scarce or make sure you were doing something fruitful, fruitful and productive and not just sitting in the meal room having a coffee with your mates. It was really important and significant to know who was in charge, who was there. As you look at the world around you, I wonder if you ever stop to think to yourself, who is in charge? Because it makes a very big difference to how you and I ought to live, how you answer that question. If you know who's in charge, you know how to act well and wisely in the world. But if you're not really sure, or if worse still, you think no one's in charge, then you might get yourself into a bit of trouble. It's where we're headed tonight. We're going to dive into Esther, but I just want to start into Esther by giving you a bit of a summary of some of the details of what we looked at last week and help us lead into this week. Last week, we saw Esther being encouraged by Mordecai to bravely go before the king to plead for the life of the people of God. And she's already done that. She did that in chapter 5. Enormous courage. She turns up at great risk to her life, with the king potentially going to take off her head, except that she lives. And she lives and she's able to ask the king for the life of the people, but instead she just simply asks for a banquet. And they have that banquet and then she asks for another banquet. And we're not told why. Perhaps Esther becomes a little bit scared when it comes to the crunch as to whether or not she'd ask that question. Whatever reason it is, she delays Uh, Perhaps it's a bit of wisdom because by the time she ends up asking the question, uh, uh, um, pleading for the life of the people before the king again, she will have asked three times. So publicly the king will have three times offered to Esther to ask whatever she wants. So she has him on the hook in some ways. And so that's probably a bit of wisdom that we see on behalf of Esther. Maybe it's just random. Events turn out. Haman leaves that very first banquet in very good spirits. And in chapter 5, he walks past Mordecai and his good spirits vanish in a second because Mordecai refuses to stand. The king's already made an edict or a law that everyone must uh, must actually, sorry, must kneel to honour Haman. And Mordecai's refused to do that. And so Haman flies into a rage. Now, as you look at the book of Esther, the king and Haman fly into a rage regularly. They've got some serious anger management issues and it doesn't take much to tip them over the edge. Haman is bursting with anger because Mordecai refuses to honour him. 
Now, as you look at Haman, he's got a lot of stuff going for him on the upside in his life. He's got three things. He's got enormous wealth, enormous power, and enormous honour. If you remember back to a couple of weeks ago, he's got enormous wealth. He offered $360 million to buy the genocide of the Jews. He's got a lot of cash. He's got enormous power. He's the second most powerful man in the kingdom, and he's got enormous honour. There's a law that says you have to kneel down and honour this man. And yet one man who fails to honour him and fails to give him respect throws him into rage. I wonder if you were to ask yourself, what's your biggest idol? What would the answer be? What's the point at which you are most tempted to take God down from his rightful place of the one who has all honour and glory given to him from you and replace God with something else? What would that something else be? What would your idol be? Now, For many of us it might well be money. Or for others of us, it might be the respect of those around us or perhaps family. But there's something that we're all tempted to dethrone God for and to put up in the place of God as our greatest idol. Friends, if you want to know who, what your greatest idol is, then just look at the place in your life where you get the angriest when it's taken away. And then you'll know what it is you are most likely to replace God with, whether or not it's money or respect or whatever it is, wherever it is that you get the angriest, that'll be the place where you are most likely to fall into idolatry. You see it in Haman, he gets incredibly mad when he is not honoured. He's got heaps of cash, he's got heaps of power, but what really gets Haman is a lack of honour and glory before men. Have a look at verse 13. Haman says, "All this, sorry, chapter 5, verse 13, all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. That's where, Mordecai, that's where Haman is at his angriest. That's where Haman has set up his idol. It's his own glory and honour that he idolises. Sin is crouching at Haman's door and it desires to devour him. It's controlling him. So Haman goes home to his wife and friends and he gets some advice. Uh, Both the king and Haman throughout the story of Esther both need advice at different points. They seem like they're completely unable to make decisions for for themselves. On the flip side, Esther looks like a picture of wisdom personified. She calls the shots. She's able to make wise decisions throughout the story. She's a picture of wisdom representing the people of God. Haman gets the advice. The advice is to build an enormous pole about the height of two two telegraph poles to be set up to ask the king to have Mordecai killed. I wonder if you've ever turned up at home and had uh, a family member, uh, you turned up at home with some sort of sickness or illness and had a family member describe to you that what you really need is to take a couple of Panadol and have a lie down. That'll make everything better. Well, this is the equivalent of that. Haman has come back saying, I am in a rage at that terrible man Mordecai who refuses to bend the knee and bow down to me. And Haman gets the wonderful advice from Zeresh's wife, build a massive pole that you can impale Mordecai on or have him killed on, and in the morning you'll feel much better. Wonderful advice, isn't it? 
You have a murderous hatred toward your enemy, just fulfil that murderous hatred with an actual murder and everything will be much, much better for you. There's an incredible darkness to what goes on in the book of Esther. A public murder as a suggestion for what would make things all better. So Haman goes out and builds the pole. He is ready to, to put the last piece of the puzzle in his wonderful life so that everything is going to go okay. Now this is the representative of the people of God who is about to be killed. Everything looks like it's out of control. But don't worry, God is in control. Because he's in control of everything in his universe all the time. That's how God works. So the story unfolds. The king has a sleepless night. We're not told why. No reason given. Maybe he's had too much to eat at another banquet. He simply can't, can't uh, sleep. Then he asks for the records, his own records of his wonderful achievements to be read to him. So it might put other people to sleep, but it doesn't look like it works for him. Anyway, the records are read. There's no, he hasn't actually asked for more wine or another concubine to be brought to him, just the records. The records fall open and it happens to be the account of Mordecai exposing an assassination attempt around about four years earlier. So just randomly, the records have been popped open to around about four years before now. And the king learns of this loyal subject, Mordecai, who saved his life. And the king knows that he hasn't actually honoured Mordecai for this. Haman starts work early the next day, bright and early, because he's got some business to attend to. We know what his business is, don't we? He wants to have Mordecai killed. So he's bright and early, ready to ask the king, would you mind if I just have this one man murdered? Not a big request. He said yes to a genocide not long ago. One bloke, no major drama. This should be okay. Here's how the story pans out. Let's pick it up. Chapter 6, verse 6. When Haman entered, the king asked him, what should be done for the man the king delights to honour? It's not going so well so far for Haman, is it? He doesn't get the opportunity to jump in. The king has some business he wants to attend to first. Now Haman thought to himself, who is there that the king would rather honour than me? So he answered the king, for the man the king delights to honour. Have them bring a royal robe the king has worn, and a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on its head. Then let the robe and horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honour and lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honour. Now there's not a great deal of wisdom in Haman as he just plops this out. He just makes the request very boldly and very baldly. You contrast that with Esther who is going to ask some very big questions of the king very soon and she couches them in much more favourable terms. She says, if it pleases the king and if I have found favour in the eyes of the king, Haman just wants to launch. I'll tell you, king, what you should do. And it looks very close to treason. Haman is saying, I want to look like the king. I want to be honoured like the king. Why does he do all this? because Haman's entire world is about himself. And we laugh at this part of the story. We're right to laugh. It's amusing because Haman is about to shoot himself in the foot. He's going to make a fool of himself very, very quickly and be deeply ashamed of what he has to do next. But as we laugh, there is something in this that describes all of us to some extent. There's a piece of Haman that we ought to be able to see in ourselves. Haman's at the extreme end, no doubt, 
and brutal in his self-centred and selfish approach to the world, but there's something of all of us in Haman. I want to ask you, when someone shows you a photo of a group of people and you're in it, who do you look for first? I look for me. And I reckon if you're honest, you probably look for you because the world is about me. It's about you because at our core we're self-centred, selfish people. That's who we are. And we may not look exactly like Haman, but left to our own devices and with the opportunity, we'd look pretty self-centred, pretty brutally selfish in all that we do. Friends, as we think about that and as we look at Haman with a a mixture of horror and self-recognition, we ought to recognise there can't be 8 billion centres of the universe. It's not the way the world works. You can't have every single individual human being as the centre of the world in which we live. There's one who is at the centre of the universe. There's one boss that we ought to bow the knee to. There's one who rules over everything, and that one is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one whom God delights to honour. He is the one who has the royal robes, the one whom God says, with you I am well pleased. There's one centre of the universe, and if we're to live well and live wisely, we need to bow the knee to Jesus. And perhaps tonight you might recognise in yourself that you haven't been doing that. And as I recognise in myself that I haven't been doing that in every area of my life, perhaps you know there's a space where you need to repent and recognise your selfishness and ask for God's help to live with Jesus in his rightful place that you might need to bow the knee again to Jesus Christ, not just as Saviour but as Lord over you in every part of your life. The king responds. In this part of the book, we're actually right in the centre of it. If you like, everything up to now has been leading downhill for the people of God and now in this one major event that sits in the middle of the book, everything is going to start to look on the up for the people of God and it all centres around one event. Remember, we're at the point where Mordecai is just about to be killed. At least that's Haman's plan. He's just going to lob in front of the king and say, righto, let's get this over and done with, I'm going to put him to death. This is the event where everything changes and everything turns good for the people of God. Have a look at chapter 6, verse 10. Go at once, the king commanded Haman. Get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested for Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Do not neglect anything you have recommended. It's a nice touch, isn't it? Just make sure everything you thought you were doing for yourself Make sure you do it for your enemy, Mordecai the Jew. It is a complete and absolute reversal. Mordecai's life is saved. He's honoured and glorified in the, in the streets like he is the king, like he is the ruler over the people. And Haman, it's his moment of deepest shame, isn't it? His stated enemy is glorified and he has to lead him around saying this is what is done for the man the king delights to honour. Absolute disgrace. And from this point on, everything looks up, not just for Mordecai, but we're going to see next week how it looks up for all of the people of God. 
how God uses this one event where his man is honoured and glorified to be the point where he brings honour and, and, and glory and blessings to all of his people to the end of the book of Esther. It's a huge turning point. What a reversal. And everything in our story pointed to a hugely different outcome. But then a series of apparently random events changes everything. You notice all those random events? The king couldn't sleep. Not told why, he just couldn't sleep. The king asks to read the royal records. Doesn't ask for a concubine or a bottle of wine, just read the royal records. The royal records fall open randomly to the place exactly where Mordecai has saved the life of the king. And remember, Mordecai actually overheard the assassination plot just randomly a few years earlier. And Mordecai chose to inform the king and save his life. And Mordecai was just randomly never honoured. And then alongside of that, Esther just happened to be born incredibly beautiful, beautiful enough that she would win the queen pageant. King wants a queen, Esther's it, because she just happens to be the most beautiful woman around. And just randomly, Esther turns up in the presence of the king, is not killed because the king's having a good day and not one of those days where he wants to murder someone else. All of these random events in order that God's man Mordecai would be saved and not destroyed. All of them random except that there is no such thing as random in God's world. That's the human side of the story. Friends, the world we live in is not a random series of events and out of control. The world we live in is under the control of our God at every point and we ought to remember that at every point. But we get a hint that there is not just the human side to the story, that there's a spiritual side in these verses as well, in everything that pans out. Have a look with me at the advice that Zeresh gives to her husband in chapter 6, verse 13. I'm going to pick that up just towards the end of that verse. She gives what could be described as some of the most disappointing advice a husband would ever receive. Let me pick it up. His advisers and his wife Zeresh said to him, Since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. Things weren't going all that great for Haman, but it's not surely not a great thing to have your wife say, it's going downhill, but it's going to get worse. You're going to be destroyed. You cannot stand against this enemy. And from a human perspective, you've got to say that's not necessarily what you would think is going to happen. Remember, Haman is still at this point in the story the most powerful, second most powerful man in the kingdom. But there is something going on that tells Zeresh this is the end of the line for Haman. Something bigger than what they can just see and touch and feel is at work. Zeresh says because he's a Jew, somehow you are now going to lose to this man even given the circumstances you're in. Now let me just unpack some of why that's the case in Esther. Let me go right back to the start of the Bible story, back to Adam and Eve, the first man and woman who, who sinned and God brought a curse on them. In Genesis 3, God brought a curse not just on the man and the woman but on the serpent as well that led them into sin, that tempted them to sin. Let me tell you what the curse was. Let me read for you Genesis 3. God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. From this point in Genesis 3 all the way through the Bible story, we're looking forward to the crusher, 
We're looking forward to the one that God will provide, a seed of the woman, the offspring of the woman, who will crush the head of the serpent so that God's people will no longer have this problem, the problem of sin and the problem of God's judgment. That's the situation that Genesis 3 says. When Zeresh says, you're in trouble, you're in trouble, Haman, because Mordecai is from the Jews, she actually says, Mordecai is from the seed of the Jews. And so she is saying there is something about this Mordecai being from the seed and in the spiritual realm, God is providing the seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. There's something bigger than what you can see and touch and feel at play in the book of Esther. And Zeresh, of all people, not amongst the people of God, knows that's the case. She knows that the God of the Jews will win despite whatever outward circumstances there are. Friends, no matter how bad you think the world is going, either on a big picture level, at a world level, or in your own circumstances, no matter how bad, how out of control, how violent and chaotic the world is, know this, the God of the Jews is in control and the God of the Bible will be victorious. There are forces, dark forces and principalities of this world that have power, they look powerful, but all of that is under the control of the God of the Bible. So take heart, don't be worried. Your God wins in the end. And our God, the God of the Bible, can use apparently random events in his perfect order, all the natural things that you see displayed in the book of Esther, or he can use supernatural things. You see that at the cross, in the spectacular events of the cross and the resurrection. Either way, it doesn't matter, God wins. He'll always be victorious. So let's have a look just briefly at how God wins in the book of Esther. God takes Haman, the stated enemy of God's people, and allows him to build a pole on which he will plan to kill Mordecai, the representative of the people of God, and then God turns events around so that Haman himself is strung up on that pole. And in the great reverse, the man Mordecai, who was to be strung up, and publicly humiliated and killed, is actually honoured like the king and glorified as he's led around on the king's horse, wearing the king's robe. And eventually, as the story unfolds, Mordecai becomes the right-hand man in the kingdom and glorified and honoured and blessed. What a stunning reversal it is in the book of Esther. And friends, in what looks like the triumph of evil over good, Jesus is thrown up on a pole. Jesus is publicly humiliated. He suffers and he dies, and on that very pole, God wins. And he defeats the devil himself and sin and death in the death of the Lord Jesus. And then Jesus is raised from the dead, ascended into heaven, given all glory and honour, and one day will be publicly seen in the new heavens and the new earth and honoured for all eternity. Here's how Colossians 2 verse 15 describes God's work at the cross. It says, Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. See what Haman was going to do? Publicly shame the people of God 
But God turned that around so that his man would be publicly honoured. The cross was supposed to be the event of the public shaming of God and God turned it around in an instant. So it's his greatest glory and honour in the Lord Jesus. Friends, you and I need to know who runs the universe. It's not the powers and principalities of this world. The Lord Jesus Christ is king. He rules. He's at the centre of everything. He is the one to whom all glory and honour will be given throughout all of eternity. It's time for us to bend the knee now to him and to serve him in every part of our life.